you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's happening, traders? Aaron Fifield here. You are listening to episode 101. Thanks, Emil, for tuning in. My guest this week is Siam Kidd from Norwich in the UK. He's a former Air Force pilot turned retail trader, but he's also much more. He's a serial entrepreneur, and he's also on a quest to improve the schooling system, which I can respect. I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Siam, as you can probably tell by the length of this episode. We got to chat about his shaky beginnings as a trader and his rock bottom moments, how he trades currency pairs with a technical driven approach with the goal of catching major trends when they occur. During the later half, I ask Siam about why he got into business, how he's found the ability to think big, which is something I think many people actually lack, and how he's gotten to a point where he now owns 15 businesses. Then we also talk about flaws in the schooling system, Siam's grand scheme, and what the future has in store for us. Now, there's a lot packed into this episode, but before we get into it, I have a very small favor that I'd like to ask from you, okay? I'm running a survey again, guys. So if you can spare just two minutes, please go to podsurvey.com forward slash traders. Your answers will help chat with traders to win sponsors that are a great fit. And as you know, sponsors allow us to keep the lights on and continue producing free podcasts each and every week. It's a very short survey. It's totally anonymous. And even if you did the survey I ran earlier in the year, I'd be really grateful if you can participate once again. And in doing so, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So that link once more is podsurvey.com forward slash traders. That's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, podsurvey.com forward slash traders. Thanks so much, team. I appreciate the support. Now, please enjoy this episode. Here is my guest, Siam Kid. So I'm sat in in the Tesla right now, and chat with traders is in Spotify, and like you you get um yeah. So Spotify is like woven within the Tesla sort of main screen, and 
I saw Chat With Traders come up because I've liked it on my Spotify account. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you're on like, yeah. That's so cool. You're in my car. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's very cool that some cars are coming out, coming out with apps built into them now. Like I know there's a few cars here in Australia that have like a Stitcher app and obviously Spotify and podcast iTunes and that sort of thing. It's cool. So, yeah, I think uh, this medium's only going to get bigger, which is pretty exciting. Definitely. How, are there many Teslas in Australia at the moment? Or uh, I've seen like one in Brisbane. I've seen like yeah. one and I, th- I don't know how they got it. I think there may, I might be wrong on this, there may be a Tesla dealership down in Melbourne. Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, I think that they are on their way to Australia. Uh, I know there was something a little while ago where a whole bunch of people were sort of putting down a deposit on them, uh, but they haven't like shipped, like pre-ordering. Uh, but yeah, they haven't really arrived yet, but um, will be interesting to see when they do. <laughs> yeah, they're going to take over the world over the next five years, <laughs> I really think. Why yeah. did you decide to get a Tesla? Um, I, I love tech. Uh, it was actually, I was... It's sort of a half-hearted thing. I, I love Elon Musk. I, I really do. I, I genuinely, uh, I am trying to, I really want to do a, like a, a green energy type project as an equal partner with him um, at some point over the next sort of 10 years or so. Um, but like the, the speed, honestly, I just test drive one if you ever get the chance as in the, the, the top line. And like I, I used to, I've driven all sorts of racing cars and Ferraris and whatnot, but I've never in my life experienced acceleration like, like, like this. It's, it's relentless. Um, yeah. So this one is not like 16, 2.8 seconds. Uh, and it's just nuts. <laughs> I, I just can't. Yeah. I, the novelty hasn't worn off yet. So <laughs> that is very quick. That is very quick. Um, especially when you compare that to like, that's the speeds of like Ferraris and Lamborghinis, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's nuts, and it looks really modest. Like it looks like a, it, 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 it's a family car at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah. Do you like the idea of the car being electric, though? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, and it's it's strange because I'm not like a, a hard out petrol head or anything like that. But it's just it seems kind of a little bit bizarre. Yeah, it, it is weird. I mean, I love the sound of a you know like a nice V8 or whatever, um, but it, it's. It is freaky. I mean, it's really convenient because there's Tesla chargers all over the UK. So that's free and it takes half an hour to charge up. Um, and I charge up at home. So like every time I leave home, I've got 250 miles of juice, you know. So, um, yeah, it is, it is convenient. Uh, it's interesting to hear. I've never actually spoken with someone who, who owns one before. So uh, very cool to hear. Okay. So I know you're, you're sitting in your car there all propped up. Um <laughs> Are you on any time constraints? Um, no I- time constraint. No. Okay, cool. Well, I hope you're comfortable because um, there's a lot I want to ask you about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, when we were speaking the other day, you told me that when you were 25, I think you are around about 30 years old now. Yeah. You said when you were 25, you were stone broke. So, let's just start right there. Like, what was your situation? Okay. Um. So... Sort of re rewind a tiny bit. So I think like the year before, um, we like in the air force, the the station commander got all all of the pilots in a room, and like once a year that he they always had this sort of big pep talk, and he was talking, and he he basically said, you know, if you guys work hard, one day you'll be in my boots, and you'll be you know 
talking to your pilots, etc. And I, <laughs> I sort of like wondered what is a station commander actually earning? And I, I, I real, I quickly um, asked around and like within, you know, people sat next to me and they're only earning about sort of 80 to 90,000 pounds per year. And I was like, wow, I have to work another 20 years to earn just that. And I, I, I wanted more, more like something like 50 grand a month, etc. And it was that point I, I reread Rich Dad, Poor Dad again properly and realized, oh, I've got to do something. I've, I've got to get out. And that was literally around the same time as my trading started to get more consistent. I mean, by then I'd done what, um, seven years of trading. Um, and it was, you know, like every new self-taught trader. I mean, the first four years I was every horror story you've ever heard. That was me. Um, and I thought I was, I was getting a bit confident cause I'd have, you know, these streaks where like three or four months in a row, I'd be like on fire. And obviously, um, my trading psychology wasn't fully formed because I would feel like I was, you know, Gordon Gecko. Um, and so, yeah. And like that, I, I call it Billy Big Ball syndrome. And yeah, it really flattered me because I, I left the Air Force. I was like, right, I'm going to leave the Air Force. I'm going to trade full time. Um, and so fast forward to being stone broke. I basically, I left the Air Force with no safety net whatsoever. I had, I probably, I only had 10 grand to my name, which all went into my uh, trading account. And what, I, I then made the worst trading mistake I, I think I've ever done. Basically, I I didn't have a job. I just left the Air Force and I was like, right, I'm just going to trade full time. And I was going to pay my rent, my utilities, live my whole life, you know, through my trading returns because I was, you know, coming off the back end of one of these Billy Big Ball moments. And I mean, for the for the, the next sort of two, maybe three months, everything was great. You know, I was making I was turning that 10 grand account into sort of two and a half, three grand a month. And I, was, uh, and I mean, my hand, oh, I'm cringing now just re retelling the story because it's just dreadful risk management. I was making 30% per month. And then lo and behold, either month three or month four, I, I think I lost like 50% and it was just ridiculous. Um, and it, it was to the point where I mean, I say I was flat broke. I mean, you're never going to starve to death in the UK, but I was setting up payment plans with energy providers because I couldn't pay the bills. Um, we're shopping in like Lidl, which is like in the UK, that's our sort of cheapest store. And like the people around me know the, the cheese and mayo story or basically Ellie, my fiance at the time, came up with cheese in one hand and mayonnaise in the other and sort of shrugged. And basically we were struggling to decide whether to buy cheese or mayo because we couldn't afford the, both of them. And... Yeah, so we just had to buy more pasta and rice because that's dirt cheap <laughs> and it grows. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of rock bottom. Um, yeah. <laughs> Full on. So, what led to you getting into trading in the first place? Like, we're sort of talking around the time when you're about 25 years old at this point. But obviously, you started trading a lot earlier or like at a younger age. When did you start trading and what like led you into it? So, I was 18 and again, I feel... Um, quite embarrassed, uh, telling the story because uh, I just joined the Air Force and I was going through off officers training and 
And at the same time, I've always wanted, I've always liked stuff. So I like cars and gadgets and stuff. And the Air Force wage really is quite poor. And I was thinking, right, how can I make money in my underwear in bed on my laptop? And two options came up. And one was online gambling. And the other one was trading. And I thought, well, trading is going to take too much time because that's, you know, I mean, the pros are screwing up. What am I going to do? And so I got into online gambling and, um, being the idiot that I was, I, I, I looked at online roulette and I thought, right, I, I've got it. I've hacked the system. And I now know, um, I think it's called the Martingale system. Basically, I was doubling up every time I lost. It's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I thought, what what are the odds of me losing, you know, 10, 15, 20 times in a row? And and I I quickly made about three grand profit in like an evening. And I remember going to, so this was in the mess. And I went to like at dinner with all my other sort of um, Air Force mates. I was like, guys, I've just, I've, I've got it. I, I just made three grand doing online roulette. And I've hacked it. And basically, they're all asking how. And I was like, well, you just, I, I start with 50p. And every time I lose, I double up. And by then, I think the most losses in a row was like seven or eight. And I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm cringing now because like the numbers and the stats behind it is just silly. And what I didn't know was that there was a maximum cap to how many times you could do that. Um, but and yeah, so all my friends went into my room after dinner and there was about eight people watching me and I turned that three grand into four and a half grand. And then I think like 15 reds came up in a row and I lost everything. <laughs> in front of everyone? In front of everyone. I was literally squeezing the mouse and um, everyone sort of left very quietly <laughs> as I was silently raging. And um, I then, so that was then I made my first big financial error. So I was 18 and everyone left and I, I did the, the typical trying to revenge trading well revenge gambling and i was like right i'm gonna get it all back and i maxed out um a virgin credit card so about three hours later i lost four and a half grand uh, by maxing out my credit card oh no and yeah so i haven't gambled since literally I, that night was like my big dose of reality and i haven't done since and, and then uh yeah so i then moved on to <laughs> trading where i did considerably worse <laughs> for the first four years so that's funny so how did you go maybe walk us through your first year of trading what was that like um a disaster um i'm, I'm sounding like I'm, I'm a bit of an idiot <laughs> well i was but I'm, I'm not now but um i it was alta vista back then i don't think google was around and uh, i did a bit of alta vistering and after about a few hours of google or you know research i thought right i, I got this and so i opened up some sort of um I didn't bother with the dummy account because I didn't even know that they existed. So I opened up a two grand account and I lost it um, within that first day. Um, and that was my first experience of a margin call. Um, and that will, that wasn't very nice. And the thing is with the Air Force, I, I managed to live off just 10% of my income. So literally 10% of the income paid for everything because the Air Force sort of looks after you and they feed you and clothe you and whatnot. And the remaining 90%, I was literally just blowing on the markets. And every single month for the first year, I was blowing two grand a month on the markets. And uh, yeah, so I think I lost about 50K in my first year. And I think through stubbornness, I just carried on doing that for the next four years. And I think all, um, yeah, all my mates thought I had a bit of a gambling problem, which I think in hindsight, I, I think I pretty, I pretty much did. I was just obsessed with the one-minute chart. 
Yeah, yeah, that that does sound like a bit of an issue, especially if you're using uh, 50 grand a year pretty consistently. Exactly. It's pretty much my all, all of my wages every year. And um, I mean, I mean, have you felt, found that yourself? Like from seeing like new traders, people do always slip down into the lower time frames. Um, and I feel as a, you know, for beginners, that's really quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that a bit more. Um, what did your, I'm interested to hear, what did your fiance or your, your uh, girlfriend at the time, I, I, I forget which it was, but um, what did she make of this? You know, obviously you weren't in a, in a great financial situation uh, and most of your wage was supporting your trading habit. <laughs> yeah, I, so I think she was hoping that this trading thing would be a bit of a fad. And um, I mean, she like, obviously she said, you know, why are you leaving the Air Force? Because yeah, it was everything I, you know, dreamt up, you know, aspired to, to achieve and uh but you know she was supportive um when i did leave and yeah i mean it it's hard i mean she she didn't approve especially when i'd lost like turn a 10 grand account into five and then later on a, a three grand account so that wasn't too good and but i don't know i, I, I suppose she just trusted me that i'd sort of dig myself out of my own sort of shithole, so to speak. You'd work it out. Uh, yeah. And uh, in the end, I just had to, uh, it was quite sobering because I, I I had to just go and get any old job. And and it was a, a massive reality check for me because I, I went from having a really nice paid job to um, having a 16 grand a year admin role at some recruitment company. And it was just like, it was, yeah, it was quite demoralizing, basically. And because of the, the, the lower income, I couldn't, like, my trading pretty much stopped. So, why did you decide to go into this admin role instead of going back into the Air Force? Did you just want a job that was just giving you enough money to get by that you didn't really have to care about too much? Like, what was the, what was the idea? Well, well one, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't rejoin the Air Force like that. Like, once you quit, it's, you know, it's, you, the, the door is closed. Um, and I just, I, I literally, because I, I screwed everything up, I just needed some income because I couldn't pay any bills. So I literally went to not the job center, but like, I think it was uh, one of the online job boards and I just applied, you know, the st standard applied for like 20 odd jobs, um, had like 10 interviews and all of them turned me down apart from this admin job. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I was still trading. However, I was trading like a two grand account, um, which is literally peanuts um very difficult and i was just yeah and i was just i had to go back to the drawing boards basically okay so how long did it take you to become profitable um i i, I think yeah it was really soon after that i think i am um, after really screwing up i went back to the drawing boards and i think only six months after that huge screw up i i started I, I just started being sensible. I was I was being extremely picky. I finally got my head like overnight. Like there was one night, one morning, I woke up and like risk management finally clicked in my head, so to speak. Um, so I, I think from year seven onwards, I started. I traded way less. I was going back to the daily charts only. I was placing probably one trade a, um, a fortnight, and I was just being really selective. And making sure that my, my the triple R was there, and I mean I, I I'd always paid lip service to triple R, but I am um, 
I, I made sure my triple R was one to three minimum, and preferably um, at least one one to eight. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was on a massive self-development sort of um, drive. I mean, I was reading like I was going through about three or four books a month through audio, you know, audio books uh, and stuff. And I, I'd read, you know, Market Wizards and like all all of the the standard books, so to speak. And Van Tharp was a huge, huge um, help. So, you know, with the power of hindsight, looking back, you said it took you about six to seven years to become profitable consistently. Yeah. How would you have shortened that amount of time? I would, if I had someone who knew what they're doing, that would have been rather handy, someone to actually ask questions to. But um, all I was doing was just Googling um, and trying to basically trial and error and developing my own sort of BS detector, basically. Um, and I, I fell into every, every pitfall you could ever make from strategy hopping to buying black box type things to day trading to, well, scalping. Um, and scalping is alluring because sometimes you can make, you know, <laughs> a hell of a lot very quickly. And then the next day, you uh, I mean, obviously, the underlying thing here is that I had very poor risk management. I mean, there's no good or bad forms of trading um, as long as you have good risk management. However, my caveat to that is that if you're a new trader and you're like in your first year or two, I would highly recommend staying away from day trading. I know you feel very strongly about this. Um, let's just get into it right <laughs> yeah. now. Why, why do you say that? Why do you try to encourage new traders away from day trading? Um, well, I've got this sort of mantra that boring trading is good trading. Um, and my trading has always been really good when I'm bored out of my mind. And um, the thing is, with day trading, maybe it's because I've just been burned massively through just sheer stupidness. But um, when you are looking at the one hour, sorry, one hour charts and below, or let's say the five minute charts, because that's quite popular. Um, you're sat there staring at your screens, and every five minutes you have that new candlestick, and you're you're constantly second guessing yourself. You're looking at the markets. You're you're staring at the, the at the P and L, um, and it, it sort of forces you to um, sort of make decisions, you know, quicker than you really need to, and what what a lot of people do because like if you're looking like everyone has you know done you know investopedia or whatever or gone on to baby pips and taught themselves you know the basics of trading and everyone's aware of support and resistance and stuff like that and the thing is when 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 you're looking at support and resistance on a 5 minute chart like the ranges or all these levels that they're, they're all very small so you may look at something and go oh cool yeah i'm going to i'm going to go long here and have like a, a put my stop loss below this level of support and your stop may be, you know, 10, 20, 50 pips. But when you look at the bigger picture, you need, like, you'll see that that, where your stop loss is, is right in the middle of all of the, all of the chop. Um, so I suppose the learning point there is that you, even if you are t trading the, the, the lower timeframes, you need a multi-timeframe analysis. You need to always look at the big picture. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I do day trade when I, when I want a new toy or whatnot. Um, but again, I, I'm, even when I'm doing that, I'm still not placing that many trades and I'm super, super selective. So only taking trades, you know, going with the trend and etc. Um, and also like you have to understand that a lot of 
So the, I don't know what the stats are globally, but I know in the UK there's only 0.1% of the nation that actually trade. So at any, one, any point in time, there's about 100,000 traders in the UK trading. And I would hazard to guess at least 95% of them are losing hand over fist because most of these traders are you know, retail traders that have done a course or they're t- teaching themselves. And, and the, the, the people that are winning are you know, the institutional investors, the prop traders, the banks, etc. And like all of the, the smart money, they know how retail traders think. They, go, they know that you know, people are putting stop losses below support or above resistance, or they're looking for head and shoulders and putting entry orders you know, below the neckline or whatnot. And so when you're looking at price action, you can, you can really tell what the banks are doing. So um, are you familiar with stop runs? Uh, yeah, but just explain it for, for any of the listeners if they're not. Uh, okay, so um, it, it, a stop run is basically where, uh, let's say you have a level of support and lots of people are going long and no doubt there's lots of um, stop losses below that level of support. So what happens, it, I mean, if you go back to the basics, when when someone goes long, there needs to be, you know, uh, in order to be filled, there needs to be like an equal size trade going short. And so if you're like a big institutional, like let's say you're a big bank and you've got hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds or dollars to to play with, if you want to have a big position to go long, you can't just go long willy nilly. You need to find sellers. And one of the easiest ways to, you know, get sellers is effectively um, stopping people out because when a stop loss is activated, that acts as, um, uh, uh, or that sell side, um, for you there and so they, they can get filled and if you look at a lot of sort of key reversals and whatnot you'll always see some sort of spike into you know into that level of support or, or resistance in order you know to to stop everyone out or to activate other you know other entry orders so to speak yeah i mean like the moment i, I, I a lot of people listening to this can probably relate you know um relate, relate to this like when i was like inexperience, it felt like the whole world was watching me every time I placed a trade. And the moment I went long, it's like everyone, oh, he's gone long, let's all go short. And like, <laughs> there are times where I just place a trade and the market just bugger off in the wrong direction, like instantly. Okay. And you, you mentioned a little earlier that another challenge you had uh, when you were coming up was strategy hopping. Um, and I think, uh, I think this is something that a lot of traders, uh, coming up also struggle with you know you, you're definitely not the only one who struggled with that what exactly is strategy hopping like how can you kind of identify when you are doing it um and, and why is it such an issue okay so um i suppose there's two um so there's two ways w- when you can approach it so if you're a typical punter and I know you've you found you've gone on some forum and you found some sort of guru saying oh you need to do this system or this you know moving average crossover type system and then you, you go along you trade it whether it's on a live or dummy account and let's say it works for a bit and you'll go oh wow I've, I've found you know a really cool system here so you, you then do this this system and then after a while you start losing and because you don't really know much or have, you know, much trading psychology or, you know, risk management at all, um, you think, oh, well, this was a, a waste of time. This, it must have been fluke. And so what you then do is you go back to, you know, the forums and the, 
you know, or books and whatnot, and you try and scour the internet for, for other systems. And that's a, a, an endless rat race type cycle, which I found myself in for, you know, a good me- number of years. Um, and anyone that's, you know, listening to this, if you can, if you, if you're in that sort of cycle, please be aware of it. Now, um, so that's the bad way to go about it. Now, obviously, if you're, if you're starting out and you don't have a system, well, obviously you need to find a system. You need to find, you know, that sliver of, of, of an edge on the market. So, um, so if you're aware of, of, you know, I mean, obviously you need to test things. You can do some Monte Carlo testing and whatnot. Um, I mean, there's, there's only so much back testing can do because, I mean, there's a certain amount of curve fitting that you can do when you're trying to test out a new strategy using past data. But yeah, I mean, please, by all means, you know, test out new strategies, you know, but be aware that not every strategy is going to work all of the time. And this is why I've sort of, I think, slowly migrated to, um, swing trading and, you know, uh, uh, technical trend trading, basically. Um, I, I personally, I mean, this is just a p- matter of opinion, but I personally believe that trend trading works simply because it doesn't work all of the time. Um, I mean, as I was saying, I think the other day to you that when you, when you look at the markets, markets only trend 15% of the time. Uh, the other, you know, all the other times they're either ranging or chopping or, you know, just being horrible looking, so to speak. Um, but when they do start to trend, they then have a high propensity to carry on trending. And, and trends do trend a lot longer than people think. And so if you can get on these sort of these, these trends, I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, potential profits to be made. And like the way I look at things is that if you look at any, uh, so I'm, a, I'm predominantly a currency trader, so majors and minors. And when you look at any sort of individual currency pair, um, more often than not, they'll each each pair will trend at least a thousand pips, probably once, maybe twice a year. I mean, some more than others because you know how. I mean, like, uh, I like pound Aussie or you know will have you know far bigger trends than say euro dollar, but it's, it's the way that they're sort of geared. But um, and I I now look at basically twenty different pairs um, that I have on my sort of radar. And I, I, it's just a numbers game for me. So I know that roughly 20 different pairs will trend in at least a thousand pips at least twice a year. So that's 40 different opportunities to try and jump onto. And really, I only need two, one, maybe two thousand pip plus winners um, to, for me to have a good year. So I'm just playing a, a numbers game. And um, I mean, you've looked at my my track record or, you know, my my reports and you'll see that I'm flat most of the time if not negative because all I'm doing is I'm trying to get in in, in these runners and uh, I get stopped out a lot or yeah so I, I may have three or four like losing or flat months and then I have a big win so I just yeah I just make sure I have only three outcomes small wins small losses and huge wins yeah yeah no I did see that and I thought that was interesting I've actually got a couple questions that I want to ask you um, around that but before we do you know, you're talking about these big trends that happen in uh, some currency pairs. How do you define a trend? Okay, well, I mean, if you're trying to jump on a trend after it's formed, you're 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 far too late. 
Um, cause normally the market's already moved like two, three, four hundred odd pips. Um, so you, you need to try and get in at the beginning. So what I tend to do, I mean, I, I try and, yeah, so I'm a swing trader. I try and sort of get on the reversal. So th- this is a lot why I get stopped out quite a lot because sometimes I, I effectively jump in front of that steam train, so to speak. Uh, but I do also manage to get on near the bottom or near the top of, of, of some reversals. So one of the key things I do it, when doing sort of support and resistance trading is that like if you're looking at a, uh, you know, any odd market, a, a, a currency pair or, or an indice or whatnot, and you see a huge level of support, let's say the market is, you know, is, is, you know, coming down nicely and you've seen, I don't know, let's take the FTSE, let's say it's, um, I know it's bounced, it's hit the 6500 level and it's, you know, bounced off. So all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's a, that's a key psychological level of, you know, support. It's a double O um, number and it's bounced off. And let's say it rallies a bit and then it comes back and over time, it, you know, it starts migrating down a bit and it's now approaching the 6500 level again. Now, in terms of support and res- resistance, I have, what I've found is that that level of support is its most strongest that second time round. So first of all, it's hit, hit that level once. And the second time it hits that 6500 level, I believe is the strongest, um, part. So what I would then do is put an entry order, uh, entry buy order, uh, at literally on the 6500 level, um, in anticipation that it hits that level again and then sort of bounces off, you know, back north. And, Obviously, I then have, you know, support, um, stop losses and whatnot, you know, below the 6500 level, but I will also scale in. So I may put an entry buy order on the 6500. I'll probably put another entry buy order on the 6450 and, and also, um, I'd scale up as well. So if it does overshoot and punch through the 6500, which, it, you know, it will do, but then retraces and let's say it, it you know, the market, the, 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 it can't close below, below it, so to speak. Um, that's how I can get on, on the reversal. So, so I'm in the trade and if it then starts going up and, you know, two, 300 or pips later, you know, it's starting to form a bit of a trend. Well, you're, you're in near the beginning. And I mean, obviously the, the, there's the standard definitions of trending, you know, you know, higher highs and, you know, higher lows, so to speak. But really, I, I just like to see the market break out from, you know, distinct levels of, uh, ranges really okay so a lot of the way you're trading is really in anticipation of a trend playing out essentially yeah yeah and and also you get the best triple r when you're doing that because if let's say the market bounces off six five hundred and like and i know it's now shooting above the range and it's starting to break out the market's probably already gone up you know two three four hundred odd pips and if you then try and go long you know on the breakout up you know north of that you know range then I mean, yes, you can still make profit, but ideally, I mean, you're, where, where are you going to put your stop loss? I mean, ideally, you always want to put your stop loss far out of harm's reach. Um, so, you know, you'd like to put it below the actual range. So you, you'd end up having like a, a really big, big stop. Whereas if you're trying to anticipate the, you know, the bottom of the range or the bottom of a, you know, a, a potential reversal, you can afford to have a, a far smaller stop loss. Um, so you could have like, I don't know, um, a 150 to 250 pip stop, but, and then end up, you know, bagging a, a thousand pip or whatnot, um, and making, you know, anywhere upwards of, uh, one to five, you know, triple R. 
Yeah. So I guess the other side of that is you also get stopped out quite a lot. Um, you know, your stops oh, yeah. get hit uh, very quickly, yeah. um, which then leads you to have quite a low win rate. Correct. It's 32%. For me. Okay. And, and, you know, a lot of people aren't comfortable with this or they find that difficult to actually stomach. And I, I guess that's maybe one of the reasons which kind of leads to uh, strategy hopping, which we spoke about a little bit earlier. But how did you get comfortable with having a win rate around 30%? Well, I don't forget by that time, I'd had years of unsuccessful day, day trading and scalping. And like, like one of the things that allures people, you know, to these sort of day trading or, you know, any sort of beginner or black hat strategy is that, you know, do this system and you're 95% accurate, etc. And I was well aware that, yeah, you, I mean, you could make up a system right now, which is 99% accurate, but, and you'd have all these win, 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 win. But when you had that loss, it would wipe out like a month or more worth of profit. And so I was well aware of, you know, triple R and expectancy and whatnot. So, and I am, um, so yeah, going back to the question, what, what made me feel more comfortable is that, well, one, I, I'd just given up on, you know, staring at the charts, you know, five hours a day, et cetera. And I wanted something which is, uh, I could just run and get on with my life. So I, I, I sort of came up, as I said, earlier, I, I had, I just sort of got into the mentality that all I need is one or 2000 pip trades and that'll make me, you know, 10, 20, 30% per year. Uh, and I was just trying to play the numbers game. And even though I, because I'm trying to get on, you know, I'm, I am literally stepping in front of the train a lot of the time. I, I only dipped my toes in. So those first few, you know, couple of entry orders that I'm, you know, trying to jump onto the trend, I'm only going in at 0.25% max risk instead of, you know, what, you know, a lot of people go, oh, you know, 1% is, you know, max risk. Well, I mean, if I kept going in at 1% max risk, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd be destroying my account left, right and center. But, um, so all of these initial trades are 0.25% max risk. And then if I'm stopped out or well, great, well, uh, I don't lose much. And I know that, you know, the, that trade idea is, is a, is a dud. But when the trade starts to go in favor, um, I then scale in. So I then, I mean, my second entry order, one, you know, um, once it's going up. So probably a hundred pips, once I'm about a hundred pips in profit, um, that will be about 0.75% max risk. And then all subsequent sort of scale-ins would be anywhere between 0.25 and 0.5 uh, or half a percent max risk. And, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm mitigating risk as we go along. Um, so I'm like, for example, on the Black Monday, um, um, debacle, I, I mean, there was, I think on, uh, on the JIR 30, so the, on, on the DAX, I had about, Whilst it was spiking down, I probably ended up having about 25 trades all on the DAX. Um, and as it spiked down, it was just, uh, it was just activating like all of my entry orders. Uh, I, I call them fishing nets, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, that's interesting. How did you, how did you go about, or were you involved in trading, uh, what's just happened this week, uh, with the elections? <laughs> I, I haven't done too well, to be honest. Um, so like on my Facebook six months ago, I said, Trump's going to win. Um, and I'm expecting the markets to, to tumble. And so a few weeks ago, I, I, I sent out to, you know, the, you know, the, some of the people that follow me, um, I'm setting up some positional trades and I'm, I'm getting, I'm putting my shorts in now, 
because we've been hitting all time highs recently on, you know, all of these on the indices and whatnot. And I thought, right, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, get a positional trade in. And I literally, I, I, I wasn't watching the markets because it was like four in the morning in the UK here whilst this was going on. And I was, um, yeah, and I had a fair few trades open. I mean, not much. I mean, I, I'm, I was, I'm down. In fact, yeah, I'm down 5% because of Trump, because even though I got the direction right, I mean, um, the S&P did spike down and I was massively in profit or I had a massive floating profit. Um, what I didn't expect was it to rebound and then rally like a absolute mother. <laughs> You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. A lot of what we've been talking about here has been, actually, just before I get on to this, this next point I wanted to ask, um, you're, you're talking about how you like to catch the really big moves. Okay, so you're taking a lot of small losses, uh, just waiting for that big move to come along. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you anticipate when that big move is going to come along? Because obviously, just trying to trade each reversal and that sort of thing, like the market is more likely to put in a big move at a certain point than it is off each, you know, little reversal. So, how do you... I don't really know quite yeah. how to word this question, but I think you you know what I'm getting at. Like, when yeah. is the market most likely to put in a big move? So, well, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, no one's got a crystal ball. But what I do like looking for is is, is coiling. So, um, uh, <clears throat> well, basically, what, whenever we see a big move, what you, what you'll find is that if you if you look at any big spikes like Black Monday and whatnot, uh, volatility tends to sort of drop for some reason um, just before these big moves. And we, and we see a sort of coiling in the market. So the range, you know, you know the, the, the range of the candlesticks um, for the 
week or a few days beforehand gets really small and it's like a, it seems like it's a, a big spring that's being compressed and then eventually um, I mean, it, it's basically market compression and after compression um, is always expansion and normally I mean you see these on you know uh, flags or wedges or you know triangles and whatnot is uh, all these these patterns these wedges and triangles are a form of compression and you can see you know at the focal point you know that the zenith of the sort of the the, the triangle is the maximum coiling and then you see the release of some sort and then you see a big uh, big spike now i i try I, I do like um like some sort of flags, you know, where you see a real distinct uh, coil and you see a really distinct levels of support and resistance in these sort of wedges and whatnot. Um, in which case, I mean, sometimes you don't know the, the level, so you can straddle it. Um, and then obviously you have your safe, your, your fishing nets above and below, so to speak. Um, but also, I, I like really strong defined levels of, um, or ranging, um, i.e. bullish and bearish rectangles. So if I see a huge like downwards trend, let's say, in a market, and then all of a sudden over a month or so, um, the market just hovers around a, you know, you know, a, a, a level and it's, you know, it's creating like a, a nice 200, 300 pip range over a month or so. But when you're looking at the big, big picture, it you can see that it's a big bearish rectangle. That is when I like to get in my shorts near the top of that resistance. And what you'll normally find with bearish rectangles is that when it does finally spike down uh, to the downside, you will always see some sort of stop run. Um, and that's where I get my shorts in. And uh, yeah, so I mean, the honest answer is I don't know when it's going to happen. But when I when I see these really defined levels of support and resistance, I know something's going to um, kick off because the way I look at support and resistance is like, imagine you're by a lake and you pick up a soft pebble and you wing it, wing it across the water. Well, that pebble is going gonna, is gonna to bounce, isn't it? And every time that pebble connects with the water, it loses some kinetic energy. And it keeps bouncing and bouncing until it's got no, you know, not enough kinetic energy to bounce. And then it just plops through the water. Well, I see the markets like that. And the more times the level is, a, is attacked, um, the weaker that level becomes. And so this, as I said earlier, the, the, the strongest a level is, is when, you know, the first or second time the market is smashing into it. And the weaker, the weakest part of, of a, of a support or resistance level is when the market is smothering it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. Um, and just a, a question based off what you said there. What's the difference between a bullish and a bearish re- rectangle? Yeah, sure. So, um, if you have a, let's say on the, on the daily and weekly charts, you've got huge downward, you know, momentum. Um, and then all of a sudden the market stalls and it then starts going sideways. Um, and then breaks to the downside. You can see it's created like a, a long, like a rectangle and that will be a bearish rectangle. And the opposite is for a bullish. So if you see a big bullet, you know, rising market and then the market sort of takes a breather for, a few weeks or a month and creates a distinctive level of support and resistance. Yeah. that And then breaks to the upside. That is a, a, a bullish rectangle. And I mean, what, what a lot of retail traders do when this, I mean, you go on any, you know, trading website um, and you'll see all these patterns, you know, head and shoulders, double tops and whatnot. A lot of people trade them and get in way too late. 
So with a bullish rectangle, a lot of people get in when they're, when the, when the market's breaking on the upside of these, you know, of these rectangle, of, of the bullish rectangle, where in fact the most profit and the least riskiest part time to get in one of them is on the bottom, uh, is literally on the support level of that rectangle. Cause that way you have the smallest stop loss and, and the highest, um, R multiple basically. Okay. So what defines a, a bullish and a bearish rectangle is depending on what side it breaks out of. It's the overall trend of the market. So for example, let's take um, euro dollar. If you look in the big picture, that's uh, um, falling. No, no, let, let's go pound dollar. So cable has been falling massively over the last sort of two years, hasn't it? Well, if, and, and, the, and there is still downside pressure. So if all of a sudden the pound dollar starts ranging, and over the next, you know, month or so, and it creates a really strong level of support and resistance, i.e. a rectangle, I mean, that would be a potential bearish rectangle. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. You know, just moving on from that a little bit, um, you know, a lot of this has been, you know, it sounds as though you're a very technical trader. How important are fundamentals to you, if at all? So, in my overall investment sort of life, fundamentals are crucial they, they're really important but for my trading um negligible um because yeah I, i'm I, i've just got a system I, I stick to it and it's just a numbers game uh, for, for me and like so yeah I, i'm very technical and the thing is every now and again probably once every two maybe three years uh, one i'll be jumping on on a thousand pipper trade and I'll, you know, I'll be sort of a thousand pips up, but it'll then turn into two, three, four thousand pip trade. And when that happens, I mean, that single trade, I will be riding it and I'll have, you know, God knows how many, um, positions on it. I'll, I may have sort of 20, 30 positions on that, on that trend. And that one trade will make me sort of two or three years worth of profit. Um, so that, that's all I'm doing. In terms of fundamentals, I, I use that for my overall investing. So um, I trading is just one pillar to my financial parthenon, so to speak. And I believe everyone needs to sort of identify that they have a financial parthenon, whether they know it or not. And you need as many pillars as possible. So trading is one of them. You know, business needs to be other. You know, you have business properties, alternate investments, gold and silver, um, all, all sorts of different things. And so especially for businesses and my sort of longer term investments. Yeah. Fundamentals are, are big. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a big, I've got a lot of physical gold and silvers because just because of where the fundamentals are really, it's just a, it's a safe hedge. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about uh, all your business related ventures uh, very shortly. Uh, before we do, you know, I, just going back to this point about, you know, you're trying to catch these really big, uh, moves, you know, thousand, two thousand upwards pip moves. How do you actually manage a trade like that? I know you've talked about how you actually scale into it and that sort of thing, but you know, nothing moves up in a straight line, two thousand pips. <laughs> you know, there's there's some really big retracements during that time. How do you manage those? Like, how do you know where you're going to get out? if it continues and if it, you know, starts to turn around and like, how do you ma actually manage that position? Yes, it's a good question. So, um, when I'm in a trade, um, 
I, what I've learned is that you really need to make things mechanical. And the more thinking you do, the worse your, your trade will be. Um, and, and so I do not like to top pick or bottom pick once I'm in, in the trade. Um, because you're just going to scare yourself out. Um, especially when you're looking at the PL, you'll see that you're not, you know, 800 pips up and you're looking at the, you know, the pound, how much, you know, the monetary amount you're up and every bone in your body is going to want you to snatch basically. And, and you're spot on, like things do not go up in a straight line. So, um, the, the reason I love the daily charts is because, or one, most people around the world are looking at the one, five minute, one minute, five minute and, you know, hourly charts. But when you're looking at, um, big trends, so, you know, 500 plus, uh, pips onwards, you'll, you'll, oh, but long story short, I, I use two moving averages to, to monitor, to maintain my stop losses. So, um, I, I used to be quite technical and have my, you know, stop loss in accordance with ATR and whatnot, but now I, I just keep it really, really simple. So, um, simple trading is good trading for me. Um, so I just plot an eight and 21 EMA. And what I do is I will trail. So once I'm in a position, once I'm in profit, once I'm a hundred pips up, I'll then start trailing the eight EMA. Um, and what I do is I make sure that I have uh, a nice gap between the 8 EMA and my stop loss and also a, um, a layer of protection in between that. So when I say protection, I mean like a double O number or a five or, or a five O number because they are natural sort of psychological levels of um, support and resistance. And so as the market goes up, by the time it's sort of 250, 300 odd pips, because I'm trailing 8 EMA, I'm only breaking even by the time it's, you know, a couple of hundred pips up. And what I then do is I keep on trailing the ATMA. And then when I've locked in 200 pips, so, I mean, this, this hurts. It really does hurt because by the time I've locked in 200 pips by trailing the ATMA, the actual trade is probably, you know, 400, 500 pips in profit. And you're sat there going, oh, I'm only, you know, locking in half of that. And then, yeah, so the 200 pips um, part is quite key for me. And then um, I then leave the stop loss there and wait until the 21 EMA catches up. And so that's even harder because you, you, the market will carry on going in your favor. And by the, by the time the 21 EMA is sort of caught up, like the whole trade may be six, 700 pips up and you've only just started training the 21 EMA. Um, yes, there are times where, you know, the market, you know, goes up six, 700 odd pips and then just pulls back and all reverses. And, you know, I've only bagged 200 odd pips or, you know, 400 odd pips or whatnot. And that can be really frustrating. Um, but um, what I found by basically what, by trailing the 21 EMA, um, that gives you enough space uh, from the market to, 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 to trend. And just, just pull up a chart, any, get a, any major pair out. Uh, and look for any big trends and plot the, the, the 8 and 21 EMA. And you'll see that they, the market does always, always pulls back to the 8 and 21 EMA. And yeah, as long as your stop loss is below, you know, the 21 or above it, if you're, if you're shorting, you, you'll be fine. And then eventually the market will, you know, reverse or pull back into my stop loss and I'll be out. I mean, there's zero thinking involved. And so I literally spend less than five minutes a day trading because all I'm doing is I'm looking for my setups. If I see none on my on my radars, I, I don't do anything. And if I've got some positions, I just just smidge up my stop losses um, by you know every other day or so. Right, right. 
Now, you said your trading takes about five minutes a day, and this is something I was going to ask you about because you'd, you'd mentioned it the other day when we were speaking. That's going to sound really absurd to some people that you spend no more than five minutes a day trading. Um, I don't know what, what question to ask first, but like, <laughs> is, that, is that realistic for someone who's still finding their way as a trader? No, definitely not. Because I, I'm a firm believer that you need chart time. Um, I mean, we've all heard that 10,000 hour rule, you know, where, you know, it takes 10,000 hours to be good at something. I think it's actually a lot more than that. I mean, there's, I mean, you can do 10,000 hours of, you know, something and still be pretty shit at it. Um, so it has to be quality time. And I, I, I think I've had well over 40,000 hours of staring at charts. And so it gets to the point where you can look at a chart and, you know, you can see all, you know, the price action and you get to understand price action a lot more. And so when you're starting out, yeah, you, you need to, you, you need chart time. Basically, you need to understand price action because like I have basically two moving averages, I, the eight and 21 EMA and pretty much that's it. I mean, I, I may have, you know, have a sort of an, another indicator to help me get in, but I am, um, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and that's it. So yeah, to begin with, when you're finding your feet, you, you need to put in the time, you need to read the books, you need to read everything Van Tharp has, has kindly made. <laughs> um, and you know, all the other, all, all like all, and the market wizards books, etc., and, and really get into trading mindset. Cause that, that is everything. But uh, for me, I mean, I am of the opinion that like I, I personally, I know that I'm going to trade until the day I die simply because it doesn't impede in my, my, my daily life. Um, whereas I, we are all busy, no matter who you are, what you do. I mean, we all, you know, have a job or a business of some sort. And then we, like, if you have to come home and, you know, feed the family and walk the dog and then spend, have to spend like another few hours staring at charts, it's going to get in the way of your personal life. And that's why a lot of people, you know, they may start get, getting into trading, but, you know, three, six months down the line, they just give up because it, it takes too much time. Whereas if something takes five minutes a day, well, you're far more likely to continue doing that. And so I've just got a set routine. I, I wake up whenever I wake up um, and I, I sort of stumble into my office in my dressing gown. I load my, I've, I've you don't need multiple screens, but I've got three screens and I um, I load up um, my, my, my sort of radar, so to speak. Uh, and that is something I've sort of developed myself. And I just look for potential setups. I, or, so this radar is effectively like a, a tiny, I'm just looking for a certain sort of indicator, so to speak. And if I see a potential one, I'll then open up a, you know, a proper chart and have a look at it. And I've got a rule that if I've got to think more than sort of three seconds about it, I don't place the trade. If I've got to think about it, it's not a trade. Yeah, I like that. Um, that's actually, I interviewed John Carter on the podcast. I think it was like episode 69. And uh, he said something very similar. Um, he said... Oh, I'm going to butcher it, so I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to link to it in the show notes. But yeah, he said something. He said something very similar to that, which uh, which makes a lot of sense. So this radar is, is essentially like a um, a scanner of some sort. Like that's really what saves you a lot of time. Yeah, massively. And I'm even, I'm getting quite lazy actually because I'm I'm actually about to get a an, a trading assistant. So I'm well. I'm, I'm going to get another PA and that person's going to also, um, do my, my scanning for me. Um, 
so the plan, I'm literally probably a week away from getting this and doing the recruitment as we speak. The plan is for that person to, I'm going to teach that person, you know, my, my methods, etc. And then every day, or in fact, look at the charts a lot more than I do and get that person to look at my radar. And then if there is a potential setup, oh, by the way, every time I see a potential setup, like out of like, in order for me to place a trade, I'll, there's probably, I'll go through about 10, maybe 20 potential setups for me to actually place a trade. And so I'll get this person to go through the radar. If there's a potential, look at the big chart, um, like a proper chart, um, and see if it's a goer. And if it is a goer, what I'll do is I'll get that person to, I don't know, WhatsApp me or, or I mean, they're going to be in the same building. They'll just say, Simon, here's a setup. I'll then have a look. Um, and then if I say, yeah, it's a goer, I'll say, right, place the trade for me. Um, and that person will know, you know, what to do next. So I'm just trying to leverage everything in my life, everything from time, money, assets, resources, everything. I'm just lazy, basically. <laughs> well, no, I think that's a good thing in some ways, you know, that's what you got to do to, to scale. Um, there's a, there's a quote by, is it Bill Gates, something around that, how you always hire the, the laziest person over someone <laughs> yeah. else because they'll find a, a quicker or easier way to do it or something like that, which um, I think is maybe relevant to this. Yeah, that's. I, there, I've got a, a concern about what I'm going to do though. So, like, it'll be interesting to hear the the, the feed on this because this is sort of um, sort of an ask for my point, really. So, I one one of my concerns is if I do this and fully outsource my trading. I'm going to lose touch with, with the markets simply because I'm not doing any, any looking. And like one of my, one of my rules is that, you know, if you go abroad on holiday or you're traveling, I, I purposely, I turn the charts off. I do not trade at all because like, uh, for me, it's like, imagine you're in the cinema and you're watching a movie. I know the Avengers and whatnot. And you can sort of, you know, you get the storyline. Normally it's not that complicated, but let's say you've got a, exit the cinema for 20 minutes to take a phone call when you get back in you, you sit back down you're going to be like what the hell has happened and it's going to take you you know 10 15 minutes to catch up with with the storyline and i think the markets are very very similar yeah so i i think if you do go traveling and whatnot um you should trade very small position sizes uh you know when you get back just to get your eye back in and i i'm i'm actually worrying slightly that by outsourcing things, I'm just going to lose track of the markets. All right. So, we've spent a lot of time talking about trading. I, you know, and obviously that only takes up a small portion of your day. What's the rest of your day made up with? Talk to us about your life as a businessman. Okay. Um, so, to begin with, the only reason I love business is because I've scoured the globe, you know, all its asset classes. And I'm of the opinion now that the asset class of business is by far the most lucrative and best ROI or best, you know, triple R business or asset there is by, by far. I mean, if I, if any of my businesses don't grow 50% in a year, I'm, I'm pretty pissed off to be honest. Whereas can I make 50% per year on my trading account? No not consistently anyway. Um, and so I've over the last sort of, well, over the last five years, I've been getting into business, but really over the last three years, I've been getting pro I've been, do I've been really dedicating all of my time into it. So I, um, I, I, I've basically, I've got, uh, about 15 businesses now, 
five of them I've, I've you know started up myself so they're my sort of babies so to speak but I've been I've been really getting into mergers and acquisitions and like the ROI on that like for like the ROI cash wise and also time ROI is just like un, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before um and and so all I'm doing is I'm because I what I say to new traders is that they need to ex- ignore all of the hype that they see on Google because trading will categorically will not make you rich anytime soon if you if you don't have any capital to begin with. Whereas most people think it will when when it really won't. I mean, you can be busting out 20, 30 percent ROI years every year. But if you're trading a 10 grand account, it's not going to get you far. So you you need the capital. I mean, capital is 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 crucial with trading as you can uh, imagine so all i'm doing is i'm siphoning all all of the dividends i'm getting through the businesses are all all flowing upstream to my my holding company and i'm i'm just siphoning all the profits from my businesses into my trading account and then i'm using trading as sort of a, a like my computer is like my is like a cash machine it's like a compounding interest machine and, and when you look at lots of rich people around the world, you'll see most of the billionaires out there have not got rich through, you know, gambling or trading, or whatever. It's it's through business. It's by, you know, setting up, running, growing and then selling the business. And when they get that huge liquidity event, they then, you know, by default become investors. And so no one really ever got rich through compounding interest. Um, that's sort of this, you know, marketing myth. You know, they go, oh, make 10% per year and in 40 years you'll be rich. Well, who wants to be rich in 40 years when you can't do anything? Um, so, yeah, I think you need to use compounding interest to grow your capital and, you know, exacerbate the returns that you get, if, if, if that makes sense. Um, so I've just realized I haven't actually answered your question. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the day in the life is, I suppose, like... The day in life, all I'm doing every day is just, um, or I don't even run the businesses anymore. So I, again, I, I like to utilize other people's time. So I have people, I staff that, that run everything for me. And, and I mean, a lot of people poo poo staff and whatnot, but I think they're the most important assets of a business. Like they are the most important things, um, in any business, which your staff, you've got to look after them. And like, when you're first starting up in business, you, you're literally clueless, just l- like with most things really. And you're like, you're the salesperson, the accountant, the sales, uh, like marketing manager, the customer relationship manager, the bookkeeper. You, you, you literally have to do every, every job. And what you, you get tied in to, you know, you, you get right down into the weeds and you, you end up working in the business when in fact you need to be working on the business. And, um, that's so crucial. You have to work I mean, this can apply to everything. I mean, you have to work on your business or on whatever, whatever it is. So I'm of the opinion now that, I mean, if anyone else is listening to this and you are a business owner, you need to get out of the weeds. I mean, if you're still doing the bookkeeping or the cleaning or anything like that, you need to get out. And, and if you're doing anything other than looking for JVs, um, a business to buy or strategic partnerships, you're, you're, you're in the weeds. So literally on a daily basis, all I'm doing now is just trying to find companies to buy. So what was your first business? Um, well, I had a few that flopped. <laughs> so my first like two or three businesses failed miserably. Um, so do you want the first flop or the first sort of successful one? Or uh, I'd like to hear about both. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like 
like most traders, you, you get into the whole, you know, journey of financial education. And, you know, when I started realizing and finding out things about, you know, fiat currencies and how the global financial system works and, you know, how, you know, things like the Federal Reserve is, you know, a private bank owned by private shareholders and, you know, all those sorts of, you know, sorts of sexy things, etc. I was like, wow, the average Joe has no idea about this or, you know, how interest rates worked, etc. So I set up a website called HowNotToLoseYourShirt.com, and I think I was selling, you know, this this really crappy e-learning ebook or online course, you know, just basically how the world works. And I, I think I've got like ten people on board, and then yeah, it, I just had to wind it down because it was just sapping up way too much time. So that didn't work. I um, so this is all when I was like stone broke. By the way, I was like trying to just do anything to get out of my crappy admin job. <laughs> um, I, I, I was known as toilet boy in that job because like I used to literally like I used to work on my business, my part-time businesses during the lunch breaks when I wasn't at work. And I used to go to the toilet like 10, 15 minutes at a time. And I'd just be sat in the cubicle, just like not going to the toilet, but just sending out emails, invoicing and, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I, I apologize to the, the manager when I when I left. So what was the first business that got some traction and, and started to take off a little bit? Ah, uh, yeah, um, I was a bullion dealer actually. So obviously, go, you know, I was, I was a big fan of Robert Kiyosaki, and then I got I found you know Mike Maloney and all the, you know people like Jim Ricketts, Chris Mar- um, Martinson, and you know people like that on YouTube and whatnot. And I found you know I started getting into gold and silver. Because I, I really do see, I mean, especially with silver, I mean, it's, it's like it's the second most used commodity on the planet. All electronic needs it. Um, and it's the world's running out of it. And I thought, wow, this is such a huge fundamental play, like a medium term play. And I started trying to find out how I could, um, buy bulk silver, you know, to get it cheaper. And I found, you know, uh, I, I didn't know at the, how big they were, but I, I managed to come across Europeans biggest, um, bullion dealer through a networking event i met their md in london and i was just saying oh i need to get into this and he was like well you know if you find a you know if you place orders over 100 grand you know you can get some really great discounts so i was like okay well i, I then put a facebook status out saying i'm buying a load of silver um anyone want to chip in and like the first literally my first order was about 100k um over about sort of 10 15 people and I then did that same status like every month for the next three or four months. And I was like, wow. And so I managed to get silver for myself really cheap. And then basically a, a bullion business, I, I, I became a bullion dealer by default. And yeah, that was a pretty pain. It was successful, but it was painful because the net margin was 1.4%. So in my first year, I turned over 1.4 million quid, but yeah, made like under 20 grand net profit, which was just horrendous for all the hours I was putting in. And so, yeah, after about a few years, I, I sold that. Um, and then, yeah, that, that left me with, um, cause I had a, a, a database of, you know, paying subscribers, so to speak. So I, I managed to sell it, uh, for a nice sum. And then I used that capital to start some other businesses really. And, and, and I put a whole whack of it in, in my trading account. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, how have you gone from having one business to now having 15 businesses? Well, it, I, I set up, um, so I sort of redid, um, my, you know, how not to lose your shirt.com sort of business and had a, like an education, um, company. 
and that that did well. So I had to sort of uh, create a sort of a, a following that way. And um, like I about three years ago, oh yeah. So I, I started some other businesses like. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had like a consulting business I set up. I set up um, um, an aviation brokering business. I mean, that did well, and then it did horribly bad. So I had to shut that one down. But um, um, like anything, I sort of muddled my way through. But I about three or four years ago, I did this this mergers and acquisitions course um, in Mallorca. And um, there's this guy who, uh, shall I say his name or not? I don't want to plug anyone, but... um. Basically, he, he's this, he's this, he's one of the world leaders for mergers and acquisitions. And I, I got one of his sales emails. Uh, it, was, it was like a, in the spam folder. It, the subject line caught my attention. And I, 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 it was a really long form. I mean, it led me to a long form sales page. And I'm like a salesperson's wet dream because I, I just buy everything. I'm easily sold to. And uh, by the end of that, I, I read it all. I pressed buy. And it was a seven seven thousand pound course for for two days in his home in Mallorca, and like I told my wife, and she was like, "Oh, you muppets! I am. You just you've been <laughs> you've been had." Um, and I was like, "Yeah, probably have, but I mean, if I can just get one nugget, so like with every like conference I go to or whatever, all I want is just one nugget which I can you know go away and do." And um, yes, yeah, so I went there with you know completely open minded and. And to be honest, I stumbled onto some apps like like a, a gem. Like if if that course was a hundred grand, it would still be dirt cheap. And like he, he was a legitimate guy. The course was great. I mean, and I learned everything from how to buy distressed businesses, how to buy successful businesses for a pound, um, how to you know basically buy and sell businesses. And like that course was the beginning where I realised that like there is no profit in running a business. Like it was quite interesting. Like the first line, but there was about seven other people. They're all business owners. And his opening line of the weekend was all business owners are mugs. <laughs> and uh, we all sat there looking at each other going, wait a minute. Yeah, we probably are. We just paid you seven grand and you're calling us a mug. Um, and then he went on to explain that basically like, there's no profit in running and growing a business. That's where all the heartache is. That's where, you know, all the growing and teething problems are, staff problems and, you know, getting to market and it's, it's costly. And like businesses like trading is a huge marathon and most people like fail, like in the first or second hurdle. I mean, in business, nine out of 10 businesses fail in year one and those that succeed year one, another 90% fail within year five. And so it's like, not like hardly anything emerges from you know five years and so basically the the, the idea is that i now just i don't I, I don't like buying businesses that are up for sale because there may be skeletons or they may be selling for good reason so i like buying businesses that are not looking for to to be sold um so i like nice profitable businesses and it's like you know chasing the girl at school you, you always wanted the girl that you couldn't get um and it's the same with these businesses. And so I, I've got a criteria. So I, I like, I need, I only buy businesses that have been running for at least three years, uh, have at least 300 grand net profit per year, um, and have like a management team in place. So I, a uh, proper, you know, staff. So that way when I acquire it, I can, you know, I can put like my own MD in or I can promote the person, you know, like the ops manager in, you know, to run the company. And then I can sit back and just get the dividends. Um, and there are certain ways you can get the company for cheap or, 
um, do like a, a thing called um, a bimbo, which is a buy-in management management buyout where you effectively use the company's profits to buy the company for you. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's basically it. So really, I, I mean, I own about 15 companies, but I only really actively manage or really run sort of three or five. And they're the ones that I set up just because they're my sort of babies. Okay. So, you might have already answered this to some degree, but why not just have one business <laughs> and grow it as large as you can uh, over having many smaller businesses? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And like some of my business mentors in the past said I'm a bit of an idiot for basically spreading my attention and time and energy, you know, everywhere, basically. And um, I mean, it, it is a really good point. I, I could just focus on one thing, but I, I'm also trying to mitigate everything. So I do not like risk. So I, I mean, as you can probably tell the trader, I'm going in at quarter of a percent per max risk per trade. I mean, I, so if you just have one business, you are susceptible to that industry. If that, if something, if someone disrupts that industry, you're, you're screwed. If, you know, if, if that one company is, you know, based in the UK and we have something like Brexit, or whatever, I mean, you can be screwed. So I, I have a very negative outlook on the world and I had this so years ago, I said to myself, for the rest of my life, politicians will always be crooks, bankers will always be bastards, uh, prices will always be too high, taxes will always be too high, uh, the government is not there to help you, and the, all the government cares about are, is being re-elected every you know, three, five years or whatever. And so when you have that outlook on, on the world, you, you, you just think, right, okay, well, no one out there is there to help me. So I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to, I refuse to be the victim. So what I've done is I'm trying to just de- design my lifestyle. So I'm trying to design it. So one, I don't need to go on holiday to escape from my life. I, I try and make my life every day, you know, a holiday. So I don't need a holiday. Um, and also in terms of financially, I, I want to be completely hedged. So, um, I've got, you know, gold and silver, you know, I am hedge. And in terms of businesses, I mean, the businesses range from engineering, IT, recruitment, marketing, education, training, uh, manufacturing. So like if, if the shit hits the fan and, you know, you know, Donald Trump, Brexit combined with China going bust or, or whatever. Yeah. Maybe a couple of the businesses will go bust, but will it, will it, will it hurt me? Um, no, not really. I mean, even if I lost all my businesses right now, I would still be financially independent. And so, yeah, I, I'm probably missing a trick by not putting all my focus on one thing. But I mean, I'm just doing this M&A thing right now. And like, and I'm getting into IPOs quite a lot now. So there's some huge, like, like buying stocks and shares is so 1990s. It, it really is. It's like you got capital gains tax. Uh, you've got stamp duty, you've got commissions. And like, as you know, most people, like re- most retail people are, um, are dabblers. People are, you know, most people that trade or are on the market are, are dabblers. Um, and I mean, the high frequency traders have got the markets licked. They really have the stocks that that market is licked and they're, they're now seeping into the high. Um, so the HFT firms are now seeping into the currency markets. I mean, as you know, it's the, the world's biggest market. So, uh, I, I only do pre IPO stuff. So for example, there was this, um, uh, this, IP, this, uh, this company, which IPO would in, in July, it, it IPO would at one euro, uh, but I got in at 50 cents a share. And so the day it listed, I made a hundred percent ROI get, like guaranteed. And it's now sat at, uh, four euros. So, um, 
yeah, I only touch stocks if I can get in before, you know, the crowd, so to speak. Right. Okay. Now, that's a, that's a really good answer. And I think you, you um, did a really good job of explaining that too. Going back to a point you made earlier when we first started talking about, uh, you know, the business side of things, you said that it's you said that you're not going to get rich from trading alone unless you have uh, large amounts of capital. You know, that, that's a fairly reasonable point to make. Yeah. And then you further made the point of saying that that's why you go into business is to, you know, make larger amounts of money, which you can then put into your trading account and they kind of tie in together. They kind of work as one in some ways. Yeah. How do you actually suggest someone goes about doing things that way because we've got to think that if someone doesn't have a business already they probably are employed if they're just starting out in trading it's likely something they do after hours yep they've now got to try and fit in starting a business and getting that off the ground like how doable is that I always put my money where my mouth is and, and I think it's really doable. But the thing is, when people think of business, they, they, they think, oh shit, I need to create the next Uber or I need to create the next Amazon or Google or whatever. And no one ever got rich really. I mean, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg, you don't have the, the one hit wonders are like unicorns. They really are. Wealth is not made in one magic bullet. It's, it's through, uh, it's the compounding of, uh, lots of toil or heartache and effort and you shouldn't your very first business you must not think it's going to be make you millions you like i i have this game which i play with myself and i call it the five to nine game and years ago this is literally five years ago i, I, I was half drunk when i came up with this with, with my friends and I, I said right i'm going to sell a business for five figures then six figures then seven then eight then nine figures and so so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm the first business, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. So I've sold a business. I'm, I'm on, um, I've just done a seven figure exit or I'm a, literally in, in the paperwork right now. So my next number is I want to sell a business for eight figures. And the thing is, every time you do that, you learn so your, your skill set in business gets massively improves uh, and you start playing at, you know, at bigger levels, so to speak. But going back to what you said, which I, th I think is a really good question, the average person is in, in employment or whatnot. And I, I think, first of all, there's two things here. First of all, you need to change your view on trading. You must, must not think that trading is going to get you out of your financial hole if you are in one. Because what you need to do is you need to work on your skills. Don't worry about the money. Just you need to make it so that you know 100% in your gut that you can trade an account consistently and profitably and make even, you know, even if you're consistently making it, you know, seven, seven, ten percent per year, you're already in the top one percent of global traders. Um, and if you, and, and what I say is that if you can create a track record of at least two years of solid stats that prove that you have minimal drawdown, that you can, you're consistently making 10% per year, et cetera, you can then go and route around and flaunting that, you know, that track record. Hell, get it audited by an accountant. So, you know, so it's proper legit or do it, you know, tr trade through, you know, my ethics or whatever, you know, any online sort of logging software. So it's all legit. And then there are people out there that will be willing, you know, like prop firms or banks or whatever, raising capital 
will be a lot easier. Now, obviously, you've you got to be careful of, you know, uh, regulations. You can't be, you know, doing fun, you know, money management without the proper sort of stuff. But you just need to get to the point where you know you can trade an account and grow it by 10, 20 percent per year, because when you can, then it's all about scale. It, it really is. So that's the first thing. So over time, over, you know, three, five years or so, just work on getting, being a good trader, even if you have a tiny account. And definitely use a live account, not dummy. Uh, you, you need to do all of this on a live account. Um, so that's the first thing with a trading um, sh- mindset shift. Um, the second thing is, um, let's say you're, you're making 10% per year r- consistently. Well, you then need to know what you want to live off. So let's say you want to make, I don't know, um, 200 grand a year. You know, most people could happily, you know, retire in 200 grand a year. So, well, at 10% per year, you need what? Um, a two, 2 million quid, right? So, you then need to start thinking, how can I make 2 million pounds in a lump sum sale? So, obviously, because I'm going down the business route, I mean, it could be property, it could be all sorts of other things, but I go, I go down the business route. Well, I need 2 million quid. So, I've, I've just got my calculator out here on my phone. So, I'm typing in um, so two million quid. Now, I would try. Uh, I would basically look for a subscription-based type business. And the reason being is that if you have an automated business, online business, which is which has subscribers paying you money, you have a really good exit multiple. So what I mean is that you can sell your business for ten, fifteen, maybe twenty times um, EBITDA or, or you know profit. So what that means is. Um, let's take 15 times profit. So if you want to sell something for 2 million quid, in fact, it, let's, let's call it two, two and a half million quid, because after taxes, etc., you're going to be screwed over. So let's say you need a two and a half million quid exit. Well, let's divide that by 15. So that means, let's assume that you can sell this business for 15 times, um, earnings. Well, that means you need a business that chucks out 166,600. So let's call it 170 grand a year. So, um, you need a business, a s- automated subscription type business that chucks out 170 grand a year. Now, so you, you've got to work backwards, as you can see. So, so now we've got this figure. I need a bus- 170k business. So, what I would suggest is that you find a product which has mass market potential at a very low price point. So, for example, you could say you could sell something at I know 21 pounds per quarter. Or $21 per quarter. I'm, I'm going to stick with pounds because I'm British. But so 21 uh, pounds per quarter. So that's what seven pounds per month. Um, I mean, I mean, what's, what's that like 30 pence per day for, you know, for the actual user. So you then need to work out the lifetime, you know, the yearly value for that customer. So if they're paying you 21 quid a quarter. Um, that's making you 84 pounds per year in, in terms of revenue. Um, so if you do 170k divided by 100, uh, sorry, 84 quid. That means you need 2,023 people paying you 21 quid a quarter. Now, obviously, that's revenue. So let's call it two and a half thousand people. I'm always, always, you know, round up. Hell, let's let's be even more conservative. Let's say 3,000 people. So you need 3,000 people paying you 21 pounds a quarter or seven pounds a month, and then you can sell that business for two million quid. You can then dump that two million quid in your trading account and then live in Costa Rica forever or wherever you want to go. Um, and like most people work a job for, you know, 20, 40 odd years. Well, hell, 
Do you think if you had a business with a product or a service where, um, do you think over the space of 10 years or even five years, you can find 3000 people to pay you seven quid a month? I'm pretty sure you can. And the, and the beautiful thing is with a product that's, you know, 21 quid a quarter, um, it, it doesn't have to be all, you know, all bells singing, dancing, whistles and gadgets. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, deliver shit. You must never deliver shit. I mean, money is a byproduct of value. Please, you must remember that. But the thing is, once you have that database, let's say you have 3000 people paying you, you know, seven quid a month or whatever. Um, and you, you, you basically, you've created your own printing press because you have 3000 people that effectively trust your product or service. So all you need to do is come up with a new product and go, Hey, here's a new product. And guess what? It's, I know the same price or hell, you then just basically created another two million pound business. So a prime example of this is, um, dollarshaveclub.com. Yeah. Well, I mean, they start off with, you know, really cheap razor blades. And I mean that, I mean, they've, they've, they've now sold for billions by the way, but they had that. And then once they had that following, they then created a new product line called, I think one wipe Charlie's, which is like a toilet paper type thing. And then nearly all of their customers became customers of that new toilet paper. So he then doubled his business overnight. Does that all make sense? So I've sort of gone on a, on a massive, you know, ramble, uh, rant there, but all work backwards. Yeah. No, I really appreciate you breaking it down. I think uh, that's uh, really insightful and uh, super interesting. Um, you know, one thing we should probably factor into those equations is is churn as well because, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Always round up. I mean, realistically, you probably need 5,000 people uh, paying you 21 quid a quarter. But um, the – and also, it depends where you exit because if you get a private sale, I mean, most private sales will be done, you know, they'll be like, yeah, we'll give you three times earnings or, you know, or, you know in this case, you know, 15 times earnings, etc. Well, if you sell to a PLC, so another stock market, uh, stock, you know, uh, publicly listed company, a lot of the time they'll try and acquire a, com- a company because you're one, probably taking their market share, uh, two, they see you as a p- future competitor, and three, they'll also they'll try and get you to bump up uh, their revenue. So I've got a friend who sold his oil company, and he went into the meeting, that the final meeting, he was like, right, I'm I'm not going to accept any less than five times. Um, um, EBITDA, so profit. And <laughs> he was saying that at this meeting, there's just him on his own. And on the other side of the table, there's nine people. So there's the main guy and like eight solicitors or accountants or whatever. And they're like, um, I won't say his name, Mr. Blah. Um, we're prepared to offer you, um, we're going to have to be quite reasonable. We, we're only prepared to, uh, offer you 21 times, um, revenue. <laughs> and he was like, right keep cool and like under the table he was like yeah and uh yeah so they're they're trying to buy 21 times turnover and all he wanted was like five times profit and so he walked out um yeah he made yeah he he sold it for 25 million quid (laughs) so why are people willing to pay 15 times for subscription model based businesses yeah. Again, another good question. Just so put yourself in the investor um, boot. So let's. So what was it? 170k revenue. So let's say it's making. I don't know. Call it 120k net profit. Yeah. Going back to that business example with the three thousand. So if a business is making 120k net profit a year, um, or and if let's say oh, in fact, so let's say I'm an investor and I'm going to buy your your business that's making 120k net profit, net net after tax. 
and I give you two million quid for that, or just work out the yield. So 120,000 divided by two million equals 6%. So just by buying you that, buying that business from you at 15 times profit, I'm, I'm, that business is going to make me, uh, 6% divvies per, um, uh, yield. And, you know, um, 6% on, you know, 2 million quid, uh, it, I mean, it's not hard. I mean, it, it, it's good. And that's a man, um, sorry, I'm, I'm, rum, I'm stuttering now, but, and that's assuming, uh, sales remain flat. So let's say I'm buying that off you. I'm not thinking, right, I'm going to buy this off you and I'm going to keep the subscribers at 3000, you know, people. I'll be sat there going, right, I'm going to buy this, give you, make you happy and, you know, give you 2 million quid. That's 15 times earnings. That's instantly made me, you know, a 6%, 6% yield. And I'm going to, you know, double the amount of subscribers. So all of a sudden that, that asset, which I've now bought from you is now making me 12% per year. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just always put yourself into the, the boots of the investor. Um, right. Yeah. I'd never really thought about it like that. Yeah. And, and also it, it automated subscription is the way forward because, um, one, I mean, I mean, you don't need a, a big business with lots and lots of staff. Um, so like if, if your whole business is automated, you know, uh, and everything, everyone's on a direct debit, I mean, that's just, that's music for an investor's ears. All right. So just moving on from this, the last thing I want to pick your brain about is the schooling system. I know you're very passionate about this. Uh, talk to us about your views on the schooling system. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to have to condense this because I can talk forever on this, but I did a TEDx talk on, on this, this, this topic um, earlier this year. And I basically believe that schools are killing our kids, like mentally. I, I really do because our schooling system was, de- you know, derived from the industrial revolution where it's designed to send as many kids as possible into the factories because we were going through that huge industrial, re- industrial revolution. And the thing is, nothing's changed in the last 200, you know, 150 to 200 years. And what it's doing is it's setting, like, at the moment, all schools are pretty much promoting the 40-40-40 plan. I, um, you know, work 40 hours a week for 40 years and then end up retiring on a pension 40% what you struggled to live on in the first place, which is the worst plan ever. I mean, why work for 40 years when you can realistically bust a gut and retire in five, maybe 10 years? Um, and so, and like those days are gone where you just work in a job forever and get a really big fat pension. Um, and so we are right now going through a technological and entrepreneurial revolution and robotics is going to wipe out vast amounts of jobs, waitresses, factories, um, you name it, uh, the, the, the law world. I mean, um, paralegal jobs will go because I mean, the computer's more accurate now. Um, so there's so many jobs that are going to, you know, disappear through tech. And if you have a schooling system, I mean, tech is on an exponential growth. Yet our schooling system is still kitting out kids with bugger all skills. So what I'm in the process of doing, or one, my, my son right now, I mean, it's, it's now, um, what is it? November 2016. He's five months old. And I simply do not trust any school in the UK for my son to go to. Um, because I know they're just going to beat the creat- creativity out of them. So I'm in the process of setting up my own super school. So financial education will be the number one topic 
Um, because as long as humans are around, there will always be money, currency markets, stock markets. So you need to understand the world financial system. Um, <clears throat> so that would be a big topic. But also, um, I mean, my kids will like, as in the kids that come to my school will know that, you know, they can be or do anything. They don't have to just settle into a job. And so the whole school, uh, you know, from five till 18 will gear them up into becoming a business owner because business owners are the back, you know, the backbone and the bedrock of, you know, of society. Really, they employ the most people, pay the most tax, uh, you know, percentage wise anyway. And, um, and worst case scenario, let's say you keep on screwing up. Well, you can always fall back and get a job. So money is not real. Money is just a concept. I mean, we're, we're the only animal on the world, on this planet, which has, you know, money. And it's no different from, you know, monopoly money or, you know, a glass of water. It's just people's perceptions and beliefs around it. And it's just, I, I think it is, it's not a real thing. So what you need to do, I mean, if you are in the position where you are wealthy and you are rich, I feel it's your moral obligation to the world to convert that paper, which is all it is, paper or ones and zeros in a computer, convert it into something real. I help with the, with, you know, the environment or, create charities or you do do whatever you know at least at the very least try and become carbon negative so yeah that that that's my thing i, I mean my my I, what i really want to do is change every school in the uk um and it's going to take me what 50 plus years but i mean if i can create just one school I, i'm happy because my my son and my children will go to that school and i'm and i know that they'll do far better than the average person coming leaving the average school so Maybe being a bit big-headed here, but it's, it's, it's my plan anyway. No, I mean, I, I'm totally in agreement with you. Like, I think the schooling system is broken for sure. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt about it, you know. You can't <laughs> yeah. say otherwise. So, you mentioned that there would be uh, a lot more subjects around finance and, um, you know, the financial world, which um, obviously I see value in that. What other subjects uh, would you want to teach more of and perhaps less of? So, I mean, less of the things which are completely useless and irrelevant for, you know, everyday in life. Like, I mean, the parents for these kids that come to my school, I mean, if their parents want their kids to be a doctor or an engineer or a mathematician or a scientist, this really isn't the school for them because you, for that, you do need good grades, etc. And I don't think I will have a, you know, a proper grading system. Um, so I think, I mean, financial education, we, we're going to have like our own currency system within within the school so um like it'll be a fiat currency so i mean if the kids can become a millionaire or a billionaire within our schooling system when they leave in, into the real world they're like well i did it you know with school money i can do it with you know sterling or dollar or, or sdr or whatever it may be back then but coding i think is going to be a huge thing so at the same time i'm, I'm going to fund self-fund this but i want one of the uk's best centers for 3d printing robotics um virtual reality and augmented reality and I, what i want is for these kids to play around create stuff break stuff from the age of five because and what i'll do is that like if a kid has been, is playing around with all of this kit you know 3d printing robotics and you know augmented reality by the time they're 18 they're going to be really clued up they're going to be creating all sorts of stuff we can't even imagine right now and what we'll probably do is you know the school keep 50 percent of whatever business they they create um and they keep half and i don't know i i, I genuinely believe this school will create the next you know elon musk or you know 
<laughs> Zuckerberg or, or, or whatnot. Um, but at the same time, you know, just real stuff, things that you need in everyday life. Like I've never in my life needed Pythagoras or trigonometry or algebra. Yeah. You know, going back to what we're talking about here, um, what sort of challenges do you, are you going to come up against in, in doing this? Like, I, I don't imagine that starting a school of your own is any, um, easy task. What are the sort of challenges? Like, I'm sure there's some sort of regulations by the government and that sort of thing. Like, how do you plan on tackling that? So, th- yeah, there's going to be quite a few regulations uh, or challenges. So, um, luckily in, in the UK, there's a thing called a free school. So, you can create a school with, you know, and, and do effectively what, whatever you want, so to speak, or within reason. I mean, I mean, look at school holidays. The only reason we have six week or eight week holidays in summer is because of harvest. <laughs> Not many people know that. Like the only reason we have these huge summer holidays is because the farmers back in the day needed, you know, their kids, you know, to help out with the harvest. Um, it, it, it's silly. I mean, I, I found a school the other day that had, that did six weeks on, two weeks off all year, all year round. Um, and, and that, I mean, that, that seemed like a far better solution, but, um, so regulations, yeah, there will be one funding is going to be another one. So I've worked out, I need at least 10 million quid to do all this thing you know, or everything that, that I need. Um, I want to buy, you know, at least a hundred acres of land so I can build stuff on it, you know, um, and get the kids to build stuff on it, etc. you know? Um, and I'm, I'm the thing is if I get government funding or external funding, all of a sudden I am like a puppet of, you know, the, you know, the fund managers or, or whatever. So I, I want to completely put every penny I have into this. So hell, it, it may be like a dictatorship, but the thing is I don't have all of the answers. I'm, I'm a simple bloke with average qualities, uh, from Norwich in the UK. I, I'm a very average and I don't know. I mean, when I did this Ted talk, I, um, it was full of educators in the room and it was so Marmite, literally half of the teachers in the room hated my guts. Um, and half the teachers in the room loved it. Um, or another thing is that I'll put the minimum wage for all teachers at, at least 60 grand a year minimum, because I don't want a teacher that has debt problems and money worries looking after my child, my, my children. I want them to be 100% focused on my kids, not their mortgages or, or whatever. So, Teachers do need to be paid more because um, they're like your kids are the most important thing in your life. Um, so, but the thing is, what I'm going to do when I fully press the go button, I'm going to pay um, the best minds in the world. I'll find the best, you know, forward thinkers. I'll get the best business people I can find. I'll get, you know, some of the best teachers and whatnot. Um, Sir Ken Robinson is high on my list. If you, if you haven't heard of him, um, read his books or just YouTube Sir Ken Robinson. He is amazing. Uh, and I want to get like 20 odd people, you know, the best people in the world into a hotel room and go, right, I'm going to pay for all of the expenses and go, right, for the next two weeks, you are not to leave here until you come up with the new blueprint for the best schooling system that will gear people, you know, kids up for the next 100, 200 years, you know, and it, no doubt it's going to be tech you know, lead and whatnot. And so I don't know what that blueprint is, but after this big conference, I'm pretty sure we'll have a really good idea of what, you know, a few possible blueprints could look like. And once I've got that blueprint, I, I can then implement it. I mean, I, I just use my business skills and whatnot. It's no, I'll just treat this like a new business, startup business. Yeah. So the first step is literally getting the best minds in the room 
um, and forcing them to make, you know, come up with, you know, ignoring all procedures and you know, you know, the norms and whatnot. Just go right. If there are no no laws, money's not a problem. Blah 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 blah. What would be the best system? And once I've got that blueprint, I I can then do stuff with that. Sounds like a solid plan, man. That's big. That's well, big. Fingers crossed. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's probably. Well, I've got a hard deadline. I need. I've got to get this school set up over the next four years or three years before my son is, you know, schooling age. But I mean, to affect other schools, it's going to, it's going to be probably a lifelong mission for me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole, I mean, what you're doing here is pretty major, you know, a lot of people, like you say these things and I can just tell that you have a lot of confidence in what you're saying and, and you genuinely believe it. A lot of people like don't have the ability to think that big. Is this always something that's come natural to you? No, not 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 at all. I've had to sort of, I, I have to beat myself into this. So, um, so one, yes, I will fail massively along the way. I I just know that. But the thing is, like you you're only a quitter when you give up when you fail. So, I I think I'm just stubborn. When the the worst thing someone can say to me is you can't do that. Or it can't be done because I'm always like, well, why not? Why the hell not? Normally, it's normally why the f not. Um, and and the thing is, you you just got to. In the Air Force, we have a thing called do, review, apply, and literally that's, that's all I'm doing in life. I'm just doing, I'm reviewing, and then I'm applying. You know the things that I I I, I fall up on. And the thing is, a lot of people like when you're setting goals. Um, Goal setting, I mean, motivation is temporary. I mean, we've all set, you know, New Year's resolution to lose weight on the 1st of January, but by the 15th of January, we're on our third Big Mac. Um, and so the thing is, people, you need to focus on your habits, not the actual goal. So if you want to, let's say, lose weight, don't focus on, you know, losing weight or whatever. You need to focus on the habits that will make you lose weight. So a habit may be, right, I will go for a 20-minute jog every single day. And you need to force yourself to get into the habit of doing that jog every day. And then you simply, like successful people, are simply the accumulation of good habits. I mean, I'm no different than anyone else, except I think I've just got better habits than people because I'm just stubborn. Um and also, when it comes to thinking, I mean, if you haven't read the book "Think and Grow Rich," you re- you really do need to do that and read everything by Napoleon Hill. Um, I was going to say Napoleon Dynamite there. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, Napoleon Hill. So, and thinking big and thinking small takes roughly the same amount of times, roughly the same amount of energy, but it's so convoluted in the thinking small world. Everyone thinks small, and so it's so so convoluted. So, just think big. And there's way less competition. And, and then you also need to change the types of questions and also uh, the quality of questions you ask yourself. So you need to condition your brain every single freaking day to say, you know, what must I do to, in, to, to get this? What needs to happen to get this? Or what needs to happen so I can buy that Lamborghini or, or whatever? And nothing's going to change straight away. But eventually your brain's going to go, oh, okay, well, you'll wake up and think and realize we're swimming in an ocean of opportunity. I can't go anywhere without thinking, shit, that's going to be a really good business opportunity. And then I have to go, oh, no, 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 you know, too many spinning plates, I am, you know, calm down. Um, 
And so that's the types of questions. And also you can use that with tragedies. You can go, right, or if something really bad happens, you go, okay, how, what needs to happen? So this shit never touches me again, ever. Um, and that way you can mitigate risk. And, and so that's the types of questions. And then you need to think the, the quality of questions. So you need to think, well, okay, instead of thinking what needs to happen for me to buy this widget, you need to say, well, what, just think bigger. So go, okay, what needs to happen so I can, so I own this shop, so I can have every widget? Um, in, or what needs to happen for me to buy this house? Or no, what needs to happen so I can buy the village? Um, just think bigger. Um, and eventually, like over, you know, a few months of ramming this stuff into your head, I mean, this, this, you know, whole Tony Robbins type stuff, um, your, your brain will just change. So, yeah, some person after the TED talk said, you can't do this. It just can't be done. And like my brain sort of exploded inside. I was like, why not? Why not? Why not? And, um, they, they just couldn't give me an answer every time I said, why not? And I was like, it's just not done that way. Well, why not? Um, and like, I've got a filter. Sorry if I'm rambling, but I've like last sort of last thing. I've, I've got a filter in my head. So whenever I've, whenever I, um, have a decision to make, uh, and I'm not sure. I, I run it by this filter and it's basically, am I going to die or is someone else going to die? No. Okay. Am I going to get hurt or is someone else going to get hurt? No. Am I going to jail or is someone else going to jail or am I breaking the law? No. Well, they're the three worst things that can ever happen. So if it doesn't meet those three criteria, well then just freaking do it. So what if you fail? So yeah, that is literally the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, what a brilliant answer. I'm loving this. Um, there's one more thing I want to ask you and then we should probably uh, wrap this up. Now, when we started talking about the schooling aspect, you were saying that as we keep moving in the future, there's going to be a point where more and more jobs are being taken over by technology and robots. How are humans going to stay relevant? Because like, not everyone wants to be behind this technology and behind uh, these robots uh, creating things like some people are happy just working in the factories like we talked about earlier where are humans going to go like what's going to happen when <laughs> robots become more prevalent yeah so it's a really good question and the thing is people have been thinking saying the same question for for centuries now so if you go back just a hundred years at, like depending on what country like if you take the UK, 90% of people worked on the land. That's nuts, isn't it? Like 90% of the people were farmers of some sort. And, and then obviously we got tech like tractors and, you know, better tech. Um, and now we have less than like 5% of the population are farmers. Where the hell have all those people gone? And the th the, at the end of the day, um, humans are resilient creatures and we we always uh, adapt and um basically we we always upskill so the farmers had to upskill and and you know do something else and it's exactly the same this way however i i do think this is a huge topic which we do need to look at because the the rate of change this time round is going to be far quicker than anything humans have ever seen in history like um like if you look at the transitions of the, the energy transitions, it, it's long. So for thousands of years, we went from, we, we use wood as energy and then we went to coal and, and the transition from wood to coal was like 200 odd years. 
And then we went from coal to oil. And that transition was like a hundred, 150 years, depending where you're on the, on the planet. And, and like, we're still using oil now, even, I mean, obviously we don't have a new form of energy. I, I ultimately, I think solar is, is the way forward. Um, but like the, the rate of change is increasing massively because tech is on an exponential growth. And for those, I don't want to teach people that's get people to suck eggs. I mean, if you're not from really familiar with exponential growth, please study the hell out of it. it, it it's scary, uh, especially when you're looking at global debt and global currency um, ex- expansion. But um, and yeah, so the next transition, like let, robots are going to absolutely like take over the world in terms of jobs before we even know it. And so that is going to be a massive shock. And so, yeah, there will be huge unemployment. Um, you know, in some sectors, I mean, China is leading the way. I mean, uh, I, I read a fact, um, there's this, this region of factories, 160,000 people have just lost their job, jobs <laughs> just because the, the factories have just got rid of the people and they've put robots in, instead. Now, um, a lot of the, the news in China is being smothered because it, it, you know, it's a, it's a nanny state, so to speak. Um, but it will happen. And I, I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, um, we'll all have like a universal basic salary, just like this, the, like Switzerland, uh, just declined. We'll all end up being paid by the government, like a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds a month just to live. And that way we can then start working on better stuff. Um, that's what I personally think. Um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, those that like the taxi driver, like if you go, <laughs> this is the prime example taxi drivers in london so black cab drivers are the mo are the best example i i go to london a lot and i always get a black cab because i just love chatting to the cabbies and just just getting a, a view of their mindset and no offense to them they're so stubborn and so backwards like anyone can see that uber is absolutely destroying the, the taxi world um especially in london um and like all these taxi drivers are just bitching and whining about uber when in fact they should in fact like be, you know, really being concerned. I mean, hell, they should, if, if they're really concerned, they should, you know, at least, I don't know, go long and Uber. <laughs> so what, the, whatever they lose in, you know, fares, they can mitigate and, you know, Uber or whatever, or, but they need to start reskilling now. They need to, you know, adapt now before, you know, te- automated Tesla cars take over the whole taxi world, basically. Um, so yeah, I, I, ultimately, I think the next five years we're in for an economic shitstorm like we've never seen before. I really do believe we're going to have an economic crash at least ten times bigger than two thousand eight. Um, so this equity crash will spill over and start another uh, property crash. We're going to have a bond market collapse as well. However, uh, yeah, we're going to have all this, you know, upheaval. But I think ten years plus, the world is going to be some awesome. It's it, it just fr- freaking awesome, honestly. The there's a book created by Peter Diamandis called Abundance. The future is brighter than you think. And I encourage every single person that's listening to this to get that book. It's a thick one, um, but just read it. Honestly, the future is so positive. It, it's silly. But just over the next five or 10 years, you just got to weather the storm. Great stuff, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out. Um, I interviewed Michael Siding. I'm sure that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, he's a ex uh, or former fund manager in Sweden and um, he was on the podcast a little while back and he spoke a lot about 
AI and um, robotics becoming more prevalent in that. It was uh, pretty, uh, it was very interesting. I, I, you know, I, I find this, I find this whole subject fascinating anyway, but you know, I'm sure we could go down a whole nother rabbit hole again, but <laughs> let's, yeah. uh, let's cut it off here. So I just want to say, Simon, thank you so much for doing this, man. And, and I appreciate you taking the time. What's almost two hours now to uh, speak with me and share, you know, a lot of really great insight with, everyone who's, who listens to this podcast so yeah thank you very much I mean, man. thank you for your time i'm sorry if i've rambled on for a bit um yeah <laughs> not at all that's the whole purpose of, of doing the podcast you know we we don't have any time constrictions so it's good in that sense um where's the best place listeners can go to find out more about you um i i don't want to plug anything so i was to just say uh, just go, um youtube my name uh siam kid uh, on YouTube, I, I try and put you know one or two new videos up on there. Um, and if people want to, f- you know, do more digging around with me, I mean, there there are links on you know my videos and whatnot. But I, I think that's probably the best thing. Okay. And do you want to share your Twitter handle? Uh, yes, I am kid. Uh, so it's S I A M K I D D. And I'm I'm loving your program. Honestly, chat with traders is you're doing more for the trading community than any other thing I, I I've come across. Like. The, the knowledge you're, you're putting out there for free is just remarkable. So I, I have to thank you because I, I love listening to them. So. That's huge. It's, it's awesome to hear that coming from you. So thanks very much. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.